and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? I'm doing great. Happy 300th episode, buddy. Exactly. Exactly. Um, this is the 300th episode, uh, and we want to... Um, Get to our guests. Those who those who are longtime listeners know that every every episode we do, the number of which is divisible by fifty, mm-hmm. um, we have two of our favorite guests on. Yes, uh, we have them back and just have a sort of freeform, loose, fun time hangout conversation to to celebrate us and how awesome we are at podcasting for another 50 weeks in a row yeah um, and also it's kind of like a freebie like as far as guests that might be difficult to get it's just like hey it's our 300th episode that's a big deal <laughs> right. and people are like oh right so oh, we, we i'm so honored that you asked me and it's just like we just wanted to get you back on the show yeah, we've, well we've landed some big fish today and we'll get to them <laughs> in a second um but real quick, I want to mention, well, I want to obviously mention in case you guys, I mean, you want it because of how great our guests are, you want to make sure you're hearing the show as well as possible. And the best way to do that is to get some professional quality earbuds. Mm-hmm. And you can do that at tweakedaudio.com slash pretension. Mm-hmm. Now, adding that slash pretension to the end of the URL. Makes that, all the difference. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It gets you one third off in free shipping on, uh, uh, like I said, professional quality earbuds in a variety of styles and colors. Now, this will be po- this episode will be posting a couple days before Christmas. You know what? I don't know if you can get it in time. But, you know what? Let's start up a new tradition of like giving people stuff for New Year's, specifically earbuds. Yeah. I think, you know, so like hear better in the new year. That's something you could write to somebody. And uh, so. Did you just think, you've you've thought about that. What? You've been thinking about that for a while. I just came up with it. All right. I know it's hard to believe something as half-assed as that. (laughs) But. uh, All right. Um, And then I also want to, before we. Introduce oh, our yeah. guest. Right. Mention that uh, now I know it's like uh, podcasting sin to like chew while you're talking, and we will try not to do that. But I want to reference the fact that there is a tin full of cookies in the center of the table here, and they were baked and sent to us. Well, sent to me, uh, but well, I'll get. What the hell is that supposed by, to mean? Well, here's the thing: by, um, from from the uh, from the Televerse podcast, our good friend Kate Kolzik. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's what happened: she DM'd me on Twitter. Okay. Asking for my address and said I have cookies to send you. I was like, awesome. She's sending me, her friend David, some cookies. I open the thing. It says, like, happy holidays whatever, to the BP crew. And I was like, all right. This is, these are very good cookies and this is very nice. But you kind of got my hopes up that I was getting a tin of cookies all to myself. You know, I've been on that show twice. Like, I know. And I just assumed she had DM'd you as well. Oh, no. People don't do that for me. <laughs> so No, I'm, uh, I, I'm joking because Kate's a good friend. And uh, these cookies are awesome. And... Um, there's a whole little guide to the uh, to the wonders within the team. Yeah, which, by the way, that guide, it's like, unless you want to, you know, as one of our guests has done, but in a way that's uh, somehow adorable, uh-huh. uh, unless you want to put your fingers on every cookie, <laughs> just separate every, if you're going to have, either do have the guide or don't. Like I don't know. I like the guide. If you do have the guide, you got to separate and them out. I like Kate, and I like her podcast, and I don't know why you hate um, the Televerse so much, Tyler. But we'll oh, because it's that. because it's surfacey. They don't really delve into it. Obviously. <laughs> well, let's um, let's let's get into uh, let's get into it. Let's get into one of what's likely to be one of our most surfacey episodes, as our 50, every fifty usually are pretty yeah. frothy episodes. That's about right. Um, and we've got um, uh, two of our favorite guests back here in the studio, uh, as it were. And I will um, I will go left to right and alphabetically. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome welcome back. To Battleship Retention, Pat Healy and Stephen Tobolowski. Uh, so glad to be here. Thank you. 
Uh, very glad to be here. You know, there's a lot of animosity in the room now because of that <laughs> tin of cookies. Uh, just it just grew here. I mean, uh, I mean, I'm seeing it now. There's and and I have the list of everything that's on the cookies now. But now that I know it's your tin of cookies, I'm feeling that I should keep my paws out. Yeah, it's oh no, very I think, proprietary. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I put my paws over all of them because I used this guide that this friendly guide here. But then you know you're like, well, where's the peanut butter one? And I'm like, you know, then I've got my dirty hands over every single one. And then Stephen walks in and sees that and doesn't want to eat any. I think no, that's I think the real you guys reason. should definitely. I think I think her saying to the BP crew means that we can do with them as we will. Okay. As we, and and we well, we want them. our guests. What, what do you think them. we're going to do with these cookies? Allow other people besides ourselves to eat them. Is I what got I'm it. saying. I got we it. we are on the on the BP, so we're part of the crew. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. You're on the payroll. Yeah. You're not going to get paid by that. Doot, doot. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, how are you guys? I'm good. I, I was okay. I was actually asleep until a few minutes ago. <laughs> right. I, I usually don't pass out in the middle of the day, so evening. Uh-huh. I usually wait till after Sweet Genius or uh, Iron Chef America. But that wasn't true today. I was out like a light, and my wife was reading my email, nudging me and saying, Stephen, Stephen. Tyler's writing you and saying, I went, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Thank here. God I sent that email. Like, Thank I, God no. you sent that email, and I'm here now go, putting my paws in the cookies. <laughs> Are you still sort of half, maybe think, feel like you're dreaming, maybe? No, a no, bit? I am wide awake. Okay. Let me Cold, tell harsh you. reality has set in Buzz after kill. listening to that intro. It's like, I know where I am now and where I'm going to be for about another hour. <laughs> now, are you, are you a big fan of Sweet Genius? You watch that? I do watch Sweet Genius. Yeah. I'm I'm a big fan of, of every... I used to be a fan of... Every Everything that didn't have that wasn't an acting show that didn't have mm-hmm. actors on it, so, so that includes sports. But you know, when you reach ages that are divisible by fifty <laughs> and, and more, I find that uh, I, it's hard for me to handle the suspense of sports. So I have to go to something that has even less suspense. So I started going to House Hunters, and that was too much for me. So now I watch kind of Sweet Genius, yeah. and it made me pass out. Do you watch Chopped? Because that's my favorite. God, show. yes, I watch Chopped. I watch. God, if, if, yes. If, if my girlfriend and I are home at the same time, and we have forty-five free minutes, we've got about sixty episodes of Chopped on the DVR, and we can always just fire one up. I I, I go for chopped. What I like are the little lessons, uh, the the proverbs that they have at the when the losing chefs walk off. You know, they always film the loser. This is always a big thing in American television: film the loser, and the chefs always walk off in slow motion and look at the camera and say something like. All I could be is the best I can be. And today, I was the best I could be for this day. I know my kids will be proud. I'm taking that one to the bank. You're not dying, man. You're going to be fine. You're going to see your kids in just a minute. Dad on television is the same thing as his dad in real life. Do you watch? Do you, you don't watch Chopped? No, no. So you know, when I was married for five minutes, I watched all those shows, but mm-hmm. never before and never after. Maybe that's why you were married. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, 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 you know, I used to watch Big Brother. Oh yeah, I've I like because I like the social experiment of putting people in a glass house and watching them behave. I still watch, but still, I actually, uh, as a function of of my wife, I've started watching Survivor and um, uh, The Amazing Race. Uh, shows that I used to kind of look down on because it was a very hip thing to look down on all reality TV. And of course, there is a 
there's a manipulative element to Survivor, but there's also every once in a while there's an episode where like this is the social ex- experiment aspect. Like there was an episode uh, I think a, a season or two ago in which uh, this one guy was everybody acknowledges he was crazy. He was just a this weird paranoid guy, and he also happened to be black. Here's why I mentioned that because another another not character another person happened to refer to this guy as crazy. Okay, <laughs> and then this guy started. Saying, crying racism. Because in his mind, he was thinking in terms of like, you know, the Richard Pryor, like that blank is crazy and stuff like that. And so it led to, at the end, there's the tribal council where Jeff Probst asks all these questions and stuff. And it went way longer than it usually does Hmm. because after a certain point, they stopped talking about like who's going to be voted out. And it started, they started talking about like what somebody intended as opposed to how somebody takes it. And if somebody takes something the wrong way, do you immediately correct them, or do, like how do you, how do you respond if somebody takes something the wrong way, and should you be more careful? It turned out to be a really interesting, intelligent, huh. insightful conversation out of Survivor, right? And mm-hmm. uh, and so that happens every once in a while, and it's enough to to keep me watching it. And, then, and also, the, I the suspense would kill you, Stephen. Like, <laughs> like this, take it. I this take it. Was, was next week they went back to eating lizard shit or whatever. Not right? They don't do that kind of <laughs> okay. anymore. They, Is that right? They've moved beyond it. I've watched right. in a long time. I watched The Amazing Race. <laughs> yeah. And here's the thing I love about The Amazing Race, that it took me... I, I've watched it for, what, 21 cycles, so that's like 10 years, essentially. And it took me forever to, to, until just the last couple of seasons to realize why, uh, what this sort of thematic like metaphor was. That you've got all these Americans. You have to be um, an American citizen to be on The Amazing Race. Damn right. Um, <laughs> uh, and you are, uh, on the surface, the surface level is that you are learning about the world... Um, more, learning more than you expected to through them because they're being forced to go all over and participate in cultural things and in all these different parts of of the world. And that's the surface like thing. But what I realize is also happening is that we as Americans are watching a bunch of disparate types of Americans that we start off the season thinking like, oh, here's the team I have in common with. I'm going to root for this team because they seem most like me. And yeah. then as it goes on, you start to see the humanity in groups of people that you would frankly never hang out with right. in mm-hmm. your real life so you're learning more about america while they're learning more about the world i, I that's, Look at that's, you. that's only occurred to me in the re- in recent seasons and you should do a whole episode of previously on about that uh, previously yeah. on is my other podcast that's why jerry bruckheimer makes the big bucks he comes up with ideas like that mm-hmm. <laughs> <clears throat> so um while we're on the topic of television, actually, Stephen, because I had asked you right before we started whether or not we could talk about it, uh, the mini project. I, yes. I, I know I saw the, I guess the eighth episode was the most recent one. Um, what's going on? Are you still on the show? Uh, no, they okay. they wrote me off of the show. Uh, and, uh, and, no, no, no. Oh, okay. It's it's it's. I don't know if you've ever been fired from a big job before. I mean, I consider it fired. They don't consider it firing. In fact. Uh, you know, to hear, when people from television uh, eliminate you, like on The Amazing Race, <laughs> you get so many compliments and presents. Uh, we love you. You're the best thing that ever happened to us. And then you know you're in trouble. I knew I was in trouble when I wasn't on the Thanksgiving show. Uh, when you're not on the Thanksgiving show, when they don't have you in costume in the Halloween show, mm-hmm. you know you're in trouble now. The natural instinct is to think like, well, I must have stunk up the joint. I, I don't think that was the case. I, uh, I don't I, I, think so either. I don't think that was the case. Uh, we, we shot two or three episodes, 
And then they, I was visiting my dad who had slipped and fallen in Dallas, Texas and broke, broke his hip. And they said, well, go, go, go. So I went, went, went. And when I came back, they said, we're going to do some reshoots on Mindy. We're going to do some reshoots. We missed some uh, angles from one of the scenes. I said, fine, no big deal. They said, well, we'll send you some pages for the shoots. I said, sure, no big problem. So I'm in the Dallas airport and I get uh, sides. I'm, I'm shooting now in less than 48 hours. And I look at the reshoot, and they, they're they reshooting my scenes, completely changing my character, and taking out most of my jokes. Mm. Mm. Uh, now, why – I figured, why are they taking out jokes from a comedy? And they, they said, well, they want you to be more of like a regular boss boss, not a funny boss. They want you to be more authoritarian. So I thought, okay, let's – make the best of this we can uh i I figured i was lucky enough to get the part and how lucky can an actor be to actually get the part twice Mm -hmm. i mean that you get the part and now you get to play a completely different part (laughs) so i played the completely different part and uh i thought it went fine i thought the reshoots went fine on that and then i saw uh, reshoots on subsequent episodes that were coming up and because I'm in the cast they were sending me the scripts and they were removing my scenes from from the show and I was thinking like well this is a terrible you know I was saying Anne forget about buying the house on Vashon Island <laughs> you know <laughs> like like batten down the hatches and the worst the worst moment came when you know, Mindy came up to me and says, I have written one of the best episodes I've ever written for you. I love this episode. And it was my 60th birthday episode, Divisible by 10, mm-hmm. and Divisible by 2. And it was a big, <coughs> hilarious episode. I figured, well, everything's great. This is a great part for me. I'm not going to worry about anything. I think my contract was only for seven out of the first 13, and I had already done – four of them so i figured well they probably have three more of my shows later down the line including this big birthday scene so i went in for the network read through no one else showed up if you've ever been to a network read through of a tv show first of all the cast shows up Mm -hmm. next of all everybody in the network shows up and all of their assistants and everybody who gets the dry cleaning and people who bring the food. Mm -hmm. I went to Universal, and the room was empty. So I figured, well, they'll show up, and I'm underlining my line sitting in this huge room that was absolutely empty, and then I get a phone call, uh, and it was one of the producers saying, oh, Stephen, you don't have to go to the read-through today. Uh, You can stay at home. I said, well, I'm actually at the read-through. And she said, well, you showed up early. I said, well, I'm not that early. It's only 15 minutes to the read-through. She said, well, there was a mix-up in scheduling. I'm sure heads will roll for this. I'm sorry, you could head on home. And I'm on my way out the door, and one of the production assistants came and said, could you sign some posters for us? So I figured, everything's okay. I kept getting mixed signals. Mm-hmm. Uh, So I went in and started signing these posters, and here's where the moment happened. I'm walking out of the room where I was signing the posters, which was in the writer's building. And one of the writers came out, and this guy normally just has the sweetest demeanor on his face, just a beatific smile, beautiful face. He saw me as I'm walking out, and our eyes met, and in absolute silence, he looked at me, 
and his face went from smile to frozen and to a little bit of dread and a little bit of, oh, my God. And in that look, with nothing said, almost by ESP, I went like, I'm done. Mm. If if mm. just whatever happens, whatever. But I ended up uh, getting a lot of free alcohol mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> because of this. So, uh, you know, I that I guess it happens in TV. Well, new shows. I mean, especially I don't know what the ratings are on that show, but like it's it goes through so many hands at the beginning. And they want to decide what the tone of the show is, which initially they'll let the creators go with that. But then, you know, it goes through focus groups. It goes through executives. It goes through the directors, the producers, the writers. And it just comes down to, you know, it's probably completely arbitrary. It's just like, well, this isn't working. Oh, well, it's because someone said, we don't need a funny boss here. We need a boss boss because everyone else, so everyone else could be funny. They could be wrong, you know what I mean? But if, if there's anyone within the sound of my voice who, who is in a situation where they feel they're in jeopardy or their future or their job or whatever is in jeopardy, just a word to you, the anticipation is far worse than the reality. Yeah. Once Mindy said, oh, we're writing you off the show, I felt absolutely relieved that I wasn't crazy, and I even felt a little proud that I had an ESP moment with uh, a young writer uh, across it. I had that once about uh, getting broken up with in high school. Uh, this uh, this girl, um, like she was being really clingy with this other guy. I was like, hmm, I, uh, well, in theory, I'm her, I'm dating her. But you know what? I think I see where this is going. So I said, so I said to her, so like, hey, uh, this other guy, uh, that you, like, everything good there? She's like, no, everything's fine. I'm like, are you sure everything's fine? <laughs> she goes, yeah, it's fine. It's like, all right, sure, okay. And then cut to a week later, and uh, she breaks up with me so that she can date that guy. And uh, so she's like, yeah, all right. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm sad, but also, you know, I called it. I totally called it. So uh, you also gave her me. an out too, which she didn't take. That's you know? yeah. Was um, the moment that got you the cuddly? Was that it, or was there anything before that? You run across that a lot in, in like the high school theater department and stuff, so it's not that weird. Yeah, but people get same handsy. Time, yeah, there's always that crew guy that gives the back rubs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. so like, yeah, and uh, yeah, we we had a crew guy um, who always seemed to find a light bulb that needed, needed replacing in the women's dressing room, <laughs> <laughs> and that guy was me. <laughs> <laughs> and damn that light bulb! It just. <laughs> But uh, no, it was it was uh, everyone was a little was a little handsy with each other. Not me. I tend not to like that kind of thing. But um, but uh, I don't think it was uh, anything specific. It's just that I think she s- said like, oh, you know, like we're really good friends. And then I realized like, well, she's hanging out with him as friends more often than she's hanging out with me as we wouldn't we weren't saying we were like boyfriend and girlfriend yet. But like as someone that she's like romantically interested in theoretically mm-hmm. and uh, that kind of thing. And so. Uh, so it was kind of that that kind of thing. It's just like that combined with she's being particularly handsy with with him. Right. So mm. you know, uh, well, it didn't bother me that much. Um, I hate to drag it back to the maudlin, but uh, oh, <laughs> no, no. but it's something that when watching that last mini project episode, was something that has often occurred to me when watching a show when a character gets written off or killed off. Like, I remember thinking back in the season one of Lost, spoilers for season one of Lost. Aww, but when please. they <laughs> what was that spoilers for a show was that ten years ago? Yeah. yeah. People um, get mad. You never know. They know. killed off Boone. 
Ian Somerhalder, and I guess oh, he yeah. eventually made up with the producers and was on like returned in flashbacks. Oh, but because he fought with them or wanted more money or something, is that why? No, I no he um he, he I remember reading like he was mad about it at the time. Gave uh, interviews about uh, okay. how his he thought that they had like set up this feeling they kept saying in interviews like anyone could go in any time and then they like talked themselves into a corner and they had to kill somebody right. off yeah. and so that's the only he felt like that was the only reason they wrote him off just to show to the audience that they could right but like his it's a death, good episode his death episode is a big like he has a big fall at the end of right. one episode and then spends the entire next episode dying like being and it means and so, something to the other characters yeah but what I often wonder when I watch that episode or other things is like what is going through the actor's head when they're doing that so when you're when 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 you, I, I forget the doctor's name on uh, Shulman Doctor Shulman when you're leaving that voicemail when you're doing that like oh, what's wow. going through your head that was that was quite an amazing moment because they didn't tell me. They didn't tell me that. Uh, they they said, well, you know, we have we have to write a big episode for you to leave. We can't just have you, uh, you know, van- you know, we're gonna write a big episode for you. And I got a phone call saying uh, we need you to come in and do some ADR. Mm-hmm. Not not that you're doing a final ep- ADR. And I walked in, and they didn't send me the line ahead of time, and they just handed to me this is what you're doing. And I read the ADR. Hello, this is Dr. Shulman. I'm, uh, I, I can't retire in person because I'm sure I would cry. Mm-hmm. Uh, tip the guys. I'll pay you back next time you're in uh, St. Petersburg or something like that. I'm going like, wow. I'm so happy that they asked me to come in and do the voiceover because they could have just read it aloud in the office and not paid me. (laughs) Right. I mean, why did they have to bring me in to do the voiceover when Mindy could have just read it and said, oh, my God, Dr. Shulman's left. Read this. And then have, you know, then have Chris Messina read the letter. Oh, my God, he's left. Man, your experience of getting fired is so different from mine. Mine was terrible. <laughs> and, and, and it crosses because it's someone that you work with. But I was in the pilot of Deadwood. And I, uh, I you know, work with David Milch on NYPD Blue. I think I did three episodes of it. And he was, he kept bringing me back, you know, surprisingly, and he would write things for me, you know, as he, as he wanted to do that day. And so, so they brought me in for, for Deadwood, which I was really excited about because I love Westerns. It's my favorite genre and everything. So, and Walter Hill, I worship, who was directing the pilot and, uh, hired me. And then I showed up to work. I did a read through with the whole cast. And then I showed up for work. I was the, was the first day of shooting of the show, and I just knew. It was just, I just knew <laughs> that it was over. And I, it wasn't until later that I, it wasn't until maybe a year later, I went through a really deep depression about it, that I found out really kind of what, there was some politics that went on, with, which had something to do with, show who's boss on the first day by firing someone mm. who happened to be me, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, it was heartbreaking. I didn't work for a year after that. That was the wow. first time that I was out of work for a year. Were you, were you out of work partly because you were depressed? I was depressed because I assumed that I uh, it was my fault, that I, that I wow. did exactly what you did not do, uh-huh. which is that I, I thought I, I screwed up. And I was already, you know, I had some other issues in my life at the time I'd gone through a breakup and so I was I was depressed at the time and so 
that actually getting that job brought me out of the depression I was in, but then losing it sent me right can, back. Can I it. bring up a a kind of a Tobolowski file thing that I have recognized? <laughs> sure, please, this Since is very it different is, for a fifty episode. Uh-huh. By it, the way, it is a season of rejuvenation. It is a season <laughs> of reincarnation. It is a season. This is something I have learned, and again, I pass it on to you people who are about to get fired, and that is that I have discovered that people are happiest in their lives when they're able to view their life as a simple form of addition, like Stephen with this snickerdoodle mm-hmm. that I'm holding right now. Really is extremely is happy, it. extremely happy, <laughs> and if it, it doesn't matter what you add. If you add little things to your life, it makes you happy. When you start to see your life as a form of subtraction mm-hmm. is when uh, either with injury, with despair, with loss, loss of a job, anything like that, you see yourself diminishing and you become diminished, small, right. depressed, everything. <clears throat> the, the solution to it, if you could find it. Find some form of addition, and it doesn't matter how meager, how small it is. See a movie that you never seen before, or a genre of movies that you think you hate. I had a, uh, I had a friend who, I'm sorry, to interrupt, no, no, I please fr- go. I had a friend who had, who passed away in 2006, and uh, boy, boy, this episode took a turn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I had a friend pass away in 2006, and um, and I went to the funeral, and it was it was very sad. Um, and then when I came home that uh, my my wife picked me up in the morning and uh, I was off from work and so I didn't really have anything to do and so I finally was like you know we've been putting off seeing United 93 because I keep not being in the mood for it strangely enough I'm in the mood for it now and I watched it and in that moment it was a weird thing I felt like it was just like because that's not an up movie uh, by any stretch of the imagination but it is that kind of thing where it's just like I always, whether it be music or movies, I flock to something that feels the way I do, as opposed to some people like, oh, I felt sad, so I watched something happy. It's like, so, didn't right. you just resent all the happy characters? <laughs> yeah. Um, whereas this, it was more just like, it was almost like solidarity and grief and, and mourning, but also it's just a damn well-made movie. Mm-hmm. And so just in watching and just being like, you know, and it's not like it made me forget that my friend had passed away, but it was just like, it was just like, oh, there's there's so much more that I can continue with now. Like, this doesn't have to be the end. Well, this was a long time ago now. Uh, We shot the pilot of Deadwood, I think was shot two years before it aired. So Hmm. this was 2002 or 2000, I think 2002. That makes sense. So we're talking, this is a decade ago. So things really have, I mean, changed for me. Mm -hmm. They've gone, you know, up and down, of course. What depression does, if you suffer from it, is it, you know, it, life is peaks and valleys and then a depressive state will level all that and you just see the oh i screwed up that job there and i broke up with this girl you're i'm a loser you know Mm -hmm. as opposed to like well there's other great things that happened in there and i got the job like you said that was great i made you know quite a bit of money just being fired and being you know replaced (laughs) and everything and um you know i got some dirt kicked in my face there but you know after that period of time you know, it's never happened. You know, I've never been fired from anything, you know. So I, I make sure that I, even though I now know that that wasn't my fault, I always make sure, maybe it was a good lesson that I really make sure that I really am truly prepared. Because the fact that I thought that it might be meant that there was something I wasn't fully paying attention to there that, that might have caused me 
to think, oh, maybe I did screw something up, you know, even though I didn't, you know, because so I just always make sure I, I do, I cross every T and dot every I and do everything, you know, 10 times harder than I, than I should. I think, um, so there was a lot of good lesson to be learned from that. But uh, I, I want to tell the story of the only time I've been kind of fired. Uh, I, I used to be, I, I used to do temp work when I was, I, I, you know, I did PA work and then I would look for work in between uh, shows or whatever. Uh, and I had this one job. It was just recurring. They'd call me every couple weeks to go in for a few days, a few days or nights, really, where basically it was an office building that took deliveries. There were certain people who worked 24 hours, took deliveries and stuff all night. So I worked worked the front desk from 11 p.m. to 8 a.m. Uh, and it was a pretty easy job. The only challenge was, you know, staying awake. Um, but sometimes some of the like big wigs, big wigs of the company would come in a little early. They'd see me at the desk, and by eight o'clock in the morning or seven forty-five when they were coming in, I was not sitting up straight. I'm like, I like practically half asleep, like not putting a good face on the company. So they asked the temp agency to stop asking me to do the yeah. job. But then whoever they got must have been worse because two weeks later, I was back doing it again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been laid yeah. off. I got. The one time I got fired, I got I was told I was let go as I was walking in to quit. So I was just like, I'll, I can say I quit. All right. <laughs> but I, I, got, I, well, I got fired. Steven, I was going to ask you, you've been working steadily for, what, 25 years, just about, maybe a little longer. Long time. Yeah. And, and was there, because I've had these experiences, too. Were the uh, have you had those moments where the, the job, the life changing job is in your hands? And the, the, the thing that's going to take you to the next level, uh, and then you don't get it, and you thought you might or you thought you would. It, it's interesting to put it this way because whether it is lack of lack of ability to evaluate projects, <clears throat> I just um, in in that break there, I was doing addition by snickerdoodle again. <laughs> I have a little snickerdoodle in my throat. I, I've had, for example, I never really imagined Groundhog Day right. being a career-changing job sure. when I read that script. And at the same time, my agent was trying to get me on the Michael Richard show mm-hmm. that he did after Seinfeld, and they were saying, this is a career-changing job. This is Kramer. You're doing it would be a regular on the show with Kramer. Right. And I'm saying, well, it's maybe career changing for for Michael Richard. I mean, he's guaranteed 27 on the air or whatever it was at mm-hmm. the time. But I'm not. Right. You know, it isn't necessary. And of course, that show was not career changing. Right. So uh, I could say, looking back on it, you know, I didn't do home improvement. That was, in fact, they did a true Hollywood. What, what is what was that show? True Hollywood, e, true Hollywood story. story. Yeah, yeah. E true Hollywood story of of Stephen Tobolowsky not doing. Uh, what you turned it down or? Yeah, I I, uh, I was going to be Al the Tool Time oh, guy okay. on oh. that show, and they had hired me to be Al the Tool. This is a very interesting point you bring out yeah. about life changing jobs. My wife was pregnant at the time. Uh, it's interesting, E! True Hollywood Story didn't ask me my E! True Hollywood Story in doing the E! True Hollywood Story of, of Al the Tool Time Guy. But I, I was cast as that part, but they weren't too sure whether 
they were going to film whether where their home improvement was going to be a mid-season replacement in air in January or if it was going to wait until September at the end of the year. My wife was pregnant mm. with our first child and they were going to pay me the princely sum of $16,000 a week mm-hmm. which was a ton of money that'd be like a big truck coming in front of your house and dumping a ton of money on yeah, your head i would tell off so many people if i <laughs> that's had sixteen thousand. that's a lot yeah. of money now like yeah. Yeah. 20 years ago but yeah. but it's like they were saying that they cannot guarantee me if we are going to shoot in january or september and i said why well, have a baby on the way and they wanted me to they had me sign an exclusive contract where i couldn't work on anything else and i said i can't do that i again the life-changing role yeah. was not Al, the tool-time tool guy, but my wife having a baby. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I picked the life-changing role, and I said, I'm going – you could take Al, the tool-time guy. I can't wait. I, I can't live on $16,000 for a year with a baby coming. And I turned the job down, and they hired Richard Karn. Mm-hmm. And Richard even said – they told me the first show I did, we still may fire you and bring this guy in called Tobolowski that we hired first. And uh, as it turned out, because of turning down Home Improvement, I ended up doing the movies mm-hmm. that people know me for. I ended up doing Single White Female, Groundhog Day, mm-hmm. uh, all those movies. that. So I had a different career than making millions right. and millions of dollars on Home Improvement. And now I have friends who... Uh I'm neither, but I have friends who, uh, you know, ended up not doing the movie and doing the TV show and having the the, the money life and not as satisfying a, a, a creative experience. And they might have, they're fine, you know, and they have great lives and everything. And they, they but, but they might have the same sort of like beef. I mean, everything I guess is a, is a life changing job in some way right, or another. Right. Um, I was just curious because you know there've been you know there's those roles that. I'm very close to and, and you know and I don't get um, but there's not really any that I can think of that would have changed my life there was a, a commercial campaign when I was 27 28 years old and I was I had been in LA for less than a year and I was getting cast in all these films like you know Little Parts and I was in um, in Magnolia and Paul Thomas Anderson's film and I'd done a, a couple scenes in that and I uh got offered this huge commercial campaign, which it was big at the time, but then I had no idea how big it was going to be. I mean, the guy that ended up doing it ended up becoming a millionaire. You never heard from him again, but uh, he made a lot of money. And uh, I, um, I, I just, I, I was just starting out. I was really, I said, I, you know, my thinking then was like, I'm going to be a movie star, you know, and, um, you know, that may have been wrongheaded, but, and sometimes I still wish I had that money, but I, I I remember asking everyone what I should do, and everybody had a different opinion. And Paul Anderson had a really strong opinion that I should not do it because it would, I I'm, I have my whole career ahead of me, and um, you know a kind that's kind of only coming to really realizing you know now all these years later. But uh, Interestingly enough, he had an actor in the film. As a, if you've seen it, as a multi-tiered, different character story. There's a whole uh, character from the film that was cut out, played by this actor Orlando Jones. And what Orlando had done was, 
after filming Magnolia in this very serious dramatic role, became the comic Seven Up spokesman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Paul cut him out of the movie. I mean, I don't, I know, I don't, I don't know if there's a connection there, but I know that I know there was something there that was like, this is, you know. People, how can we take this guy seriously? He became really famous as the silly Seven Up punch, you know, uh, uh, commercial guy. So, uh, you know, you never know. You can't if you make those kind of decisions based on those things. It's it's out of fear, and, that, and you never make good decisions out of fear unless you just get lucky. You know. Yeah, you know, money is not necessarily a bad thing, but again, it's it's. Not- and Orlando Jones has had a a fine career, so yeah. it's not that didn't hurt him. But I saw the time machine. actually that job that i was talking about where i um worked the desk sometimes i'd work days and one of the one of the um things that went on in that office building it's a place where they do adr that's right and he came in for uh what was the giant killer alligator movie primordial primordial Uh, no i'm sorry primeval primeval yes Uh, he came in to do adr met him he was a nice guy at the same time casey affleck was doing adr for gone baby gone and he was super friendly but i think i told that that story. I just always like to tell stories about when famous people turn out to be friendly, regular people. Sure. And it's interesting what you guys are talking about because there does seem to be, it does seem to be somewhat specific. I, I'm sure it can happen with any number of, of industries and stuff, but it does seem very specific to Hollywood and acting and just like choosing this project over that project. And it changes, you know, like let's say Tom Selleck, who was going to be Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. If he had been Indiana Jones, he would be, he would not be the guy on Blue Bloods right now. He would be, a like a giant. Yeah, but do uh, we not know that Tom Selleck isn't a richer than Harrison Ford ten times over and b happier? You know what no, I mean? I'm, it's I don't like mean to say that he's just like regretting all the time. No, it's but, just but Hollywood itself. When you hear that story, you always hear time. like, oh, and it's like he was like on one of the star of one of the most successful series of all time. Yeah, it's yeah. still on. He, you know, has had several series since then. He's, you know, he's always worked. Um, and, uh, you know. I always think about... Um, people on TV tend to make more money than movie stars, unless you're like a yeah. giant star, well, you know? I always who, think about... That movie um, might not have worked if uh, he was in it, That's too, true, yeah. You know? Pat, you, as I talk about every time you're on the show, you were in an episode of Angel. Yes. And David, David Boreanaz has been a lead on three series that have gone into syndication. He's got to have more money than most of the Well, like, yeah, I mean, just, just Bones. I mean, like, what's that been on? Eight years, seven years, something like that? Yeah, probably wow. five. Really? So. Yeah, five, six, I mean, seven, you know. eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Yeah, it's, in it's, it's fascinating. In the season. That, I mean, the shows my, that I don't follow at all <laughs> have been on forever. No, there's a friend of mine who I who I was just speaking about. You know, in, in general, you know, has been on a show that's been on for many, many years, and he's not the lead of the show. Mm-hmm. And and um, you know, he's a great actor, and he's going to have a great career because it hasn't. It's that kind of show that none of us would watch, but like he hasn't been tainted in any way by. Uh-huh having been on that show nobody knows they're just they'll be happy to see him in movies again in it's fact, not the kid from two and a half men is it <laughs> no <laughs> is he deserves what's coming to him <laughs> no, i want to i want to specify i wasn't with the story about tom Selleck. i believe he was not i believe the producers of magnum pi did not they let would him not let him contract. out yes and so it's uh, not him choosing wrong it's just uh, i mean that happened with michael j fox too yeah and and you know as luck would have it they had to hire another actor because they had to start on time with Back mm-hmm. to the Future, and they had to let him go, yeah. Eric Stoltz, and then they just worked it out with Michael J. Fox, and yeah. he worked, did his TV show at day, and filmed the movie at night, you know. But now, 
talking about big roles, um, the last time you were on the show, Pat, I, I had yet to see Compliance. I think I saw oh, it like had you three not days. Seen it? Okay. I think and I saw it like three seen, days later. And I had seen Compliance, you but had not seen, seen The Innkeepers. Ah. Now we've both but, seen both. Um, have you been getting, would you say you've been getting more individual attention from Compliance than... Yeah, well, um, Seems like it. yeah, because... Um, and Stephen, have you seen Compliance yet? Not we were yet. talking about, I don't know if you've gotten a screener or anything. I got, I got my Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a smaller film, but it made quite an impact because it had a... It, it premiered at Sundance, and it's quite controversial, and um, I play a rather unusual, kind of, sort of very devious role in it, which is something that I as a person I just from vanity's sake didn't really want to do I've played so many creeps on TV shows and everything you know and I definitely didn't want to do this and also it's a character who's on a telephone the entire length of the film and in fact you don't see him for much of the film and in fact the director had said who's a good friend of mine I may never show you I don't know I'm not sure yet so I just did it to, to help him out and and to be a part of the project, which was really, I, I thought, important and a great script and everything. So when the movie came out, and I am in it, and I did get attention for it. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, nobody's written about me in a movie before, in a review, or, you know, and, or talked about me or all these things, you know, and, and uh, that was quite surprising. So... Um, the uh well the the village voice poll just came out and i was uh, you know in the best supporting actor category i tied with philip seymour hoffman for the master so you know i, I i'm not doing too bad you, you know, know so I, you like know what i think i think you're better than him <laughs> i would never say that well you but. know you bring up something that i think is key and just what you said is it was a really great script yeah and and if uh, you know as an actor, if you go where there is the great script, yeah. uh, it's hard to go wrong because even if the director opts not to show you, you will still have a chance to do great work and be proud of what you've done afterwards. I was afraid of the part, and actually doing the part was rather unpleasant because of the things I had to do and say. So uh, I was I usually you know just try to have a good time, and then there's that you know I, I have a great creative experience a great personal experience you know so i don't worry about making money or if it does well for people see it because i always look at that as as extra and in this case it was kind of like just generally sort of unpleasant to do even though i love all the people and in retrospect it was a wonderful experience you know but uh the film itself being so good it has been has been great but then what's really interesting is the innkeepers which is a, a smaller horror film that i did uh the year before they both came out this year and that was it barely got a theatrical release and then it got put on Netflix instant two months ago now I don't go a day without somebody stopping me in the street really Hmm. yeah never before Netflix wowie now I I watched it on Netflix with my wife uh, uh, about a month ago and no right around Halloween so um and uh, I loved it. I thought it was genuinely very frightening. Even I, I, I think I said it on the show uh, without going into a lot of spoilers. The uh, the old man. Yes. I do not remember the name of the actor, but I do know George him. Riddle. Yeah. George Riddle. I know him as Jode Cressbeckler from the Cressbeckler stance on uh, the Onion. News yes, Network. that's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I know him as this ridiculous, outlandish character yeah. that is a, that is just a joke, literally, and he's great as that. But then, like for for that guy that I recognize like oh hey Joe Cressbeckler <laughs> but it, but like genuinely frightening and like 
and I, I since then I've had images in my head of like g- that are genuinely creepy from that movie, and uh, and the fact that there are so many like genuine laughs yeah right before uh, moments of of uh, fright that's like I was- it was very effective for me then you go on then you go on Netflix. <laughs> You look at the old reviews there. Oh, don't get me started uh, on the internet like, reviews. And I, get, I think I, I, I mentioned we, we write reviews. We do a podcast <laughs> talking about movies. I mentioned that last like, time I was here. I'm genuinely, genu- I'm genuinely perplexed by the vehement dislike that some people have for the film for the innkeepers. Yeah, because it's not a film that I don't think elicits anything. I mean, like you, some people really like it. But it's it's not a movie in a million years. I can imagine why anyone would hate. I think the problem it's with certain it's, genre films, people go into the genre expecting certain pleasure centers to be yeah, hit, yeah. starting right from the beginning. And, uh-huh. and as a horror movie, The Innkeepers is very much a slow burn. Right. I don't even but, think it's that slow of a burn. I think there's enough stuff throughout that that's but like. But also, I want to go back if to you, something. If you're also interested in human beings, so yeah, that's something. Uh, vaguely, <laughs> something you said, um, Todd. I was thinking about that applies to both of our, our guests. That I, I like about um, in The Inkeepers and Compliance in, in in Deadwood, I think you guys uh, are uh, both have a tendency to bring a lot of natural comedy to roles that aren't like specifically comedic. Mm. Um, I don't know what I wanted to say about that, but just ask you about that approach. And I, I've noticed. Uh, pardon me. Uh, I hope you guys are not offended by what I'm about to say. Uh, you do. I I have noticed like. Like uh, Pat, you've talked about like you've played so many creeps and stuff. But Stephen, you've played your share of slime balls too. A few creeps, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so it's just after a certain point, do you find like may- maybe you almost have to make it funny? So it's just like, well, look, people need to know that I'm not on board with this guy either. <laughs> like, uh, not that you're winking at the audience and you're above the character or anything, but just like it's like the the comedy makes the sleaze go down a little bit. I, I think one of the hardest moments I had was when I, I got a script from uh, Rob Hedden. Uh, a director writer who said he wrote the part for me (laughs) he wrote the part for me (laughs) and and he sent over a hard copy not even an email copy and i was like thumbing through my god is it going to be hamlet and i keep thumbing through is it going to be horatio is it going to be the third gentleman and it turned out to be butt crack plumber (laughs) and he wrote the part for me so uh you you know it 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 burns sometimes as as it is and i'm sure pat you you People will say creepy to me and think that I take will take it as a compliment, you know. And I and I I, I should, but I take it personally sometimes, and it's not necessarily nice. But thing but you but you, you, everything is kind of a metaphor, and I, I think uh, Henri Bergson. I'm pulling the Henri Bergson Uh-oh. card out <laughs> of the <laughs> thing. He was a philosopher at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. He said laughter is a form of society correcting behavior hmm. that that tension builds up towards certain types of behavior and then it is demonstrated and we laugh and the laughter is a form of humiliation mm-hmm. for the person when they get laughed at yeah. and it is a corrective and so obviously in various scripts it, it is a you are going to have behavior that needs to be corrected uh and and in terms of throwing in, you know, it, it's a double-edged sword. A lot of times I get jobs because people hire me because I'm able to make parts that aren't funny funny. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, at the same time, I, I have problems sometimes getting jobs because they'll say, like, when I come in an audition, they'll go like, what? That part isn't funny. Why did you do that? Are you making fun of our script? And I'm going, no, I thought it was a comedy. Yeah, you never know like what is going. Like that's the biggest mistake you can make is to give them what you think they want because it's never what they want because you can't know and it's not what you want. Well, it was, I, I wasn't obviously trying to give them what they wanted. I I read the script and thought their drama, their heartfelt drama, was satire. Um, that's interesting because. I remember the first time really becoming aware of you is in um, Mississippi Burning, which are quite, you know. Hilarious. S- <laughs> scary. But then the very next time I remember seeing you is in um, uh, Bill Forsythe's uh, movie, uh, uh, right. Breaking In. Breaking and you're, In. It's so funny. It's Maury Chaikin and you. It was a fluke because um, I uh, was hired by Alan Parker to do Mississippi Burning. No one knew what the script was. No one knew what part I was doing. And Alan Parker is a bit of an eclectic filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did Bugsy Malone. Mm-hmm. He did, which is funny. That's the his kids, first film, yeah. Kids Being Gangsters. He did Fame, mm-hmm. big musical. He did Shoot the Moon, a mm-hmm. really, really depressing, serious, uh, depressing dr- Divorce set. drama. You, you have no idea what it is, so nobody... The Wall, knew. Pink Floyd, The Wall. The Wall. Mm-hmm. No, nobody knew what this was, but because Alan Parker cast me, everybody thought, well, let's cast this guy mm-hmm. that Alan Parker cast. So I ended up in the Bill Forsyth movie mm-hmm. because of it. I ended up in Great Balls of Fire mm-hmm. because of it. Eventually, I ended up in Bird on a Wire because mm-hmm. of it. And nobody knew really what the Alan Parker film was. So luckily, I was not pigeonholed by the Alan Parker performance of saying, well, this guy is going to play crazy creeps from right. now on. Yeah, that's happened to me a few times. I mean, not to the degree that, that you have, but where... Whether it's your confidence after being cast in it or people go, oh, Alan Parker cast him in the movie or whatever. But you, you suddenly, you know, I did this film, Great World of Sound, and then I did it. You know, I got cast in a movie that Werner Herzog directed. And then I was doing this Jesse James movie with Brad Pitt and, up, you know, boom, boom, boom. And then I came back, you know, from all that and it was like nothing, you know. So I wrote a script and then I have a career as a writer because I was like, I'm not going to sit around and wait like this anymore. But like. There's that that heat that comes from... um, Well, work begets work. Work begets work, yes. And there's a contagion no matter what you do. If you're working, you're that guy working. If you're writing, you're that guy writing. As long as you put it out there in some way, it contagion happens. Yeah. So it's... Yeah, there's this guy, Taylor Kitsch, who's perfectly fine, but who had the, the great misfortune of being hot off a television series and getting cast in four very big movies, all of which were gigantic flops. Right. Savages did okay, but nobody, not as well as anybody. Yeah. Well, what am I, Savages, Battleship, John Carter, what's the other one I'm missing? Oh, maybe it's just three. Oh, there might well, be one was, more. He was Gambit and Wolverine. Uh, no, well, that did well, Wolverine. but it, no, I thought there was another one, but maybe it's the three, but they, it just happened. In one that, year, that's a lot. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he had the opposite year of, of Channing Tatum th- this year. Yeah. yeah. And, and that might Chastain be it for him. And, you know, Treat Williams is an actor who was a big deal and had done theater. And he did um, 1941, Hair, and Prince of the City. Where all, all these big movies. Sidney Lumet, Steven Spielberg's next movie after Close Encounters, and uh, 
uh, uh, Herr Milos Forman's, and they were all flops. And they're they're good films, you know, to a certain degree. But um, he didn't become uh, Robert De Niro, you know. But he's had you know a, a, a you know yeah. a, a, he's a had great, a career, nice but career. I, I remember reading. Man, you, you you put your finger on one of those sensory buttons. I remember I was a kid. I was probably about fourteen years old. Loved loved uh, movies. Loved theater in particular. I was driving. My mom was driving me over to Sunday school, and I was reading a Time magazine about the new hottest star in Hollywood. This guy Treat Williams, starring in Prince of the City, and I was thinking like. My God, I want to be that someday. Mm-hmm. Someday. And, and he was the thing. Yeah. Just like Michael Pere was the Absolutely. thing when he did Streets of Fire and Eddie and the Cruisers. Yep. He was the the guy. Yeah. And there have been a few of those. I mean, some of them got lucky. Like that happened with Colin Farrell, too, where it's like that boom, 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 and none of those movies did well. But he somehow hung in there. He, you well, know? He, he turned to comedy. Like he did he, comedy, he but he did smaller films yeah, and things yeah, like yeah. that. But he, yeah, he somehow hung in there. But I, I thought it, it's always important to kind of reinvent yourself in a certain way because producers and casting directors are going to think of you from something you just did. Yeah. And, and I thought the little turn he did in, like, Crazy Heart. Right? Yeah. The, right. Like the weird turn yeah. in Crazy Heart where he doesn't look like Colin Farrell, he doesn't sound like Colin yeah. Farrell. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, what a great idea of reinventing yourself in just a way it's like having a, a little sorbet after a heavy duck dinner, you know, kind of clears <laughs> the palate and you're able to yeah. jump right back in and, and do something else. And then he did else. the comedy, the In Bruges, which yeah. is a, you know, dark comedy. But, and then you know, uh, Horrible Bosses, where right. he... Didn't Plays like a guy with a, a comb over and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, I do want to go back real quick, and this is actually probably several topics now, but it's a fun story. Fun? <laughs> anyway, um, back in college, I wrote a script that, uh, David, I believe you say is your favorite script I ever wrote called Hitler's Holiday. <laughs> and it's about Hitler and Stalin going... Called, I thought it was Hitler Takes a Holiday. Maybe no, it was just Hitler's Holiday. In my mind, it's no, Hitler no. Takes a Holiday. I know, I'm sorry. You know what? That's a better title. Anyway... Um, uh, Hitler and Stalin go on vacation to the French Riviera. Or they take separate vacations and then see each other Uh-oh. there and then decide to hang out. And so it's, it was a short, short film and it was a comedy. And, um, and I was very happy about it because like, I, I thought it was genuinely funny, but it also, the two are having this ongoing debate where Stalin is very cynical and sees that the, the terrible things he's doing, it's like, I know they're bad, but you know what? To each his own. Whereas Hitler's like, well, I don't think what I'm doing is bad. It's like, yeah, come on now. And so they're having this debate about basically self-awareness. And does self-awareness, ex- you know, if you're self-aware, does that excuse you from the things you do? Or does it actually make you somehow worse? And so, um, <laughs> which, I th- which was something that was very much in my mind at the time. And, uh, and so I, but in the meantime, it was always, it was, it was very funny. I was very proud of that script. And then I gave it to somebody, uh, a friend of mine who, Admittedly, it was not much of a movie person, um, but he was interested in it, and so I, I gave it to him. And he was just like, "I don't think you should, I don't think you should joke about this kind of thing." And I was like, "He's like, you know," and he he made he made an argument that is an argument to be made. I I couldn't just I couldn't just dismiss it. Where he's like, you know, by making these by making us laugh at these characters, you are putting us somewhat in a positive. We're having a positive association with them now. We may be laughing at them, but laughing is still a positive thing, and now we're associating that with Hitler and Stalin. And I was like, 
yeah, but you're laughing at them. You're making them ridiculous. And yes, what they did was horrible, and that's that's awful. And maybe I'm I might be making a little too light of it. But you know, Stephen, as you were saying, like by making these guys just ridiculous, and like the idea of why did we why did we or why would we ever listen to somebody as ridiculous as this? And so um, I don't know. I just wanted to to chime in on that that point, like how key and something we talked about on the show, like. One of the reasons that we like having comedians on the show is comedy can can serve such a pivotal function in art and in society in general as pointing out, like, this thing is ridiculous. And that's, you know, it's like what The Emperor's New Clothes is all about is one person saying, this is ridiculous. And, every, mm-hmm. and everyone realizing, oh, yeah, this is ridiculous what we've been doing and, what, and, and the power we've allowed this guy to have over us. My, so. my experience with comedy is a little different because I don't... Uh, I don't tend to get cast in, in broad comedies. It's it's strange. I've like, you know, and that's just not my style of comedy. I mean, I certainly enjoy watching it, but it's not my style of performing in anything. So m- my thing with The Innkeepers, for example, was just really to like, it, it was a great script. So you just stay true to the action, the, the overall action, and then the action in each scene if you play it. And for example, there's a scene in that film where I am... Uh, 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 I have a, uh, a unrequited love uh, for for this girl that I work with, and and she doesn't. Um, she knows I exist, but she thinks of me as her best friend, you know. And she has no idea. And I played that scene very heartbroken. That was how I felt. The scene gets when you see it in a theater, incredible laughs, and it's funny to me when I watch it. <laughs> Because it's truthful, I, I suppose. I didn't think, like, I'll just play this straight and it'll be funny. I never, I just didn't think about it that way. And I realized that I never, ever thought of, it's certainly, I'm not, you know, a, a, a dummy. I, it enters in my mind that I'm comic relief in the film a little bit. But I certainly, you know, wasn't going for the joke. But that was, like, what made it, makes it funny. I think because it's real and it's. Well, I think the, the one thing people always make a mistake about a comedy is that they always think that comedy is goofy. Right. And comedy does not exist without meaning. For example, you just picture the an opening scene of Law and Order and Jerry Orbach is there dead yeah. and there's a woman dead on the sidewalk and he goes, well, she's not going to need, you know, she's not going to need that <laughs> yeah. ticket to the opera. And, and, and what makes it funny is, besides Jerry Arbach's straight delivery, truthful delivery, right. is the woman being dead on the floor is meaning. Right. You know, that provides meaning to the scene. If you're in a scene as a comic or a com- comic actor, and there is no mean, there, there is no real meaning to the scene. Yeah. By playing it straight, you provide meaning for the scene. Correct. And you can make it funny. Uh, if too many people are playing stuff funny, look out. Yeah, well, it starts uh, to become about itself, and right, uh, and uh, yeah, and that's the thing is like the best way, and we're we're very much re- repeating ourselves here, or I am sorry, um, that like some of my favorite dramas, whether TV or film, um, are often quite funny, and it's like, but they still that doesn't keep them from being a drama. And people tend to think like, well, a comedy is nothing but laughs, and a drama is nothing but you know tears or I don't know broken dishes or something. I predict this will come up in our episode next week. Do you predict that? <laughs> because we've already recorded. One of, I mean, one of my favorite films of all time is is Modern Romance, Albert Brooks's film, and I, mean, I worship him. You know, I, I uh, and it was one of Stanley Kubrick's 
favorite films and he would watch it regularly and call Albert Brooks and ask about him. And it's an incredible film because it, depending on what mood you're in, it is the funniest comedy of all time or the most depressing drama. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is a, is a movie about jealousy, breaking up relationships, the worst parts of ourselves, you know, in relationships. And it's hilarious because it's so true. But mm. I've watched that movie sometimes and I still think it's great and not laughed once, you know, just been sad and ref- reflective about it. I had that know? experience with, with Fargo, just not yeah. knowing yeah. sometimes my stomach churns and sometimes I'm yeah. on the floor. It's interesting Stanley Kubrick brings that up because you could take a look at Lolita. Mm. Uh, and, man, depending upon which shoes you're wearing that day, you yeah. could see the most horrifying film in the world or something that's just laugh-out-loud funny. Of course, yeah, and that's also a point of view, too. And the other interesting thing about the Kubrick thing that I just remembered was that Kubrick's main question Albert Brooks was, you made a, you made a film about jealousy. How did you do that? You, made, you showed what that really is like. Which was the genesis of what Eyes Wide Shut mm-hmm. became. That was, a, you know, he was trying to make a film about jealousy, how people feel. You know, yeah. real quick side note: uh, based on everything I've heard, it sounds like the worst thing you could ever do for your sleep schedule was be admired by Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Hear all these stories about he he would call whoever like late at night and be like, "All right, let me ask you this question about God," right. <laughs> and just like, and then just hang up, and then you know the next night call you even later. I never had the pleasure. There's a uh, that brings me up to another thing that that you know I don't know if you have this. I mean, I grew up. Uh, I, I got into this just from being a cinephile as a kid. You know, just loving loving movies and becoming an actor and trying to be a filmmaker and all these things. But uh, you know, every time we lose somebody like that, now I just go like you know, I'll never work with Marlon Brando or Paul Newman or you know. I, you know, I, I hope that people like Jack Nicholson, you know, hang in there and, and you know, you know, as awful as like a thing that that might be to say, you know, he's getting older and, and uh, he's not working as much and he's not looking as well. You know, it's like uh, I, I remember that was a big one for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm never going to do a Stanley Kubrick movie, you know, it's it's I have that, too. And and I feel when you lose not only a great person, a great actor, great director, I feel sorry. And at the same time, as I age, I feel roles, great roles in Shakespeare passing me by. That's going another like, thing. A friend and I had a conversation like, I'm never going to play that part. I know. I'll isn't that crazy? Play that damn That's part. just started to happen to me. Cause yeah, I, well, let know. me tell you. I, yeah. <laughs> I walk past the graveyard every morning. I look in the mirror and I, and I go like, oh my God, all these parts that I thought I was I going to play and now I only kind of played them in acting class maybe once. Right. Did you, did, it seems to me that all actors, no matter, they, everybody always thinks that we all sort of like started out thinking that we were going to be like you know character actors but I, but we all didn't you get into it because you like whatever who was a james dean or whoever and meet girls and all that kind of stuff i, I mean I, I didn't want to do it to meet girls i i thought i would be able to meet monsters <laughs> and, and, and it, it turned out to be true but, but uh the I really thought, you know, like you, I was a cinephile, and I thought all the monsters were real. That, that Batman, that, I mean, uh, 
Dracula, yeah. uh, Wolfman, uh-huh. Godzilla, they were all real. And if I was an actor, I'd be able to hang out with Godzilla. <laughs> I just heard an interview with Tom Tyke for the, the director who said the exact same thing. He saw King Kong and then he, started, he said, I want to hang out with the monsters. And yeah. That's how I became a film director. And, 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 you know, after that, after that, I remember I was 10 years old and, and then came Vainglory. After, right. after Monsters was Vainglory, I used to practice doing Academy Award speeches in the shower when I was 10 years old. And I remember... I had won the year before in my fantasy. Right, so right, it's the right. second year in a yeah, row. There's always weird details and, like that. And I beat Gary Cooper. And, and, and I was, and I remember just getting all pruney in the shower doing these these speeches. That's Vainglory yeah. stage at ten. And then after Vainglory came, when I was in college, I thought it was noble. I thought somehow acting, and this was way before Buttcrack Plumber. I, I thought I thought being an actor would be noble. And I came out here, I thought, do I want to go to New York and do theater, which was noble? Yes. Or do I want to come out to L.A. and make some money, then go back to New York to do theater, which is noble? <laughs> and I came out here to L.A., and uh, it became the struggle just to get those parts. Right. And when you got those parts, it, you realized, oh, this is what it is being a professional actor. And then when I ended up going back to New York and almost going broke playing one of those parts on Broadway, I'm going like, well, that isn't so noble, you know, going broke. But those are the great parts. So don't you find it noble now, though? Like I'm finding it noble now as like shitty as the business, you know, is a lot of the time. And and as as much as it becomes just like scraping by and I have a different experience because I don't have a family and and, you know, my priorities are different. But but uh there's something really noble about getting that nailing that thing and 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 when you feel it and then you feel and then it like i said it comes out and if it doesn't affect on people it's extra yeah so it's like that feels like i'm providing a service i i'm not going to sit here and say that that's why i do it you know (laughs) but i i I don't feel like I've wasted my life, it, you know. It's I, I just uh, finished an episode of Justified. And oh, that's we, one of my Yeah, you a, were great on that, It's a too. great yeah, show. That's one of my favorite shows. We, we had this scene that was very tense and in this kind of trailer, and it turned out it was exactly what you were saying. It was such a battle. It was a six-page scene. And, and to think, like, how is this going to work out? And then... Everybody was throwing in so much good stuff. The director, the other actors, you know, it was so exciting. But that's a show that you watch and you go, you know that everyone cares. Like, the writing is good. I don't know if you guys watch that show, but it's one of my favorite shows. I I worship Almore Leonard, so it it captures him uh, uh, like people rarely do, tonally, perfectly. And it's, it's, you know, it's a show when you watch that and you go, that's... That's next level. That's everyone cares. And you can watch another show and flip over to a network show and go like, they don't, they're not feeling it. And I've worked on those shows where they're walking into the trailer and they're learn they, they just got the script then and they, you know, are walking through it because they do 23 episodes in a season and they don't have time to write it, much less, you know, try and like figure it out. Mm-hmm. That You can tell. I'm, I just people believe care. that you can. Whether or not it's consciously, some people unconsciously don't know that wasn't that good, but I, I really like this show, Justified or whatever. It's it's they, people can tell they care. People care, yeah. like on Californication, people care. Yeah, you know, you show up at work there, and 
we all have so much fun and it's so great, but everybody cares. And when you care, it's more, you brought up another good point, which is when you care, it's fun. It's fun. You think that, that those things would be like, you know, oh, well, that caring, like it's like important and work, but it's actually, the more you dig into it, the more, the more fun and loose it is actually. Right, right. It's quite the Absolutely. opposite. Absolutely. So this was a, a recent this is a season four justified yes you were in season three though i was in season three and i just finished an episode uh like 10 days ago for cool. season four yeah. i can't wait i was, I was going to ask yeah. you if you were going I, to be i love that show going to be returning. great show yeah and it's true and it is hell when you're on the show and people don't care and it is hell when you don't care right and then, man, you have to look at yourself in the mirror, and there's a different kind of grave you're looking at. Yeah. I remember uh, you, this is, I guess, like last year, you stopped by, Stephen, to drop off an autograph, uh, a signed copy of uh, Stephen Toblowski's birthday party. And at the time, you were working on that, on a show like that, that has since gotten very canceled, not even a little <laughs> bit canceled. And, uh, and just, and I mean, you were making jokes about it, but like, I remember you just being like, Ah oh, man, I just got done working on this thing. It just you like like a construction worker <laughs> having just worked twelve hours and just wants to go home and go to bed so he can forget what he just did. It was uh, you know uh, David Chin. Uh, if okay. you are within yeah. the sound of my voice, David Chin. Uh, David a friend Chin. of the show, David Chin of the Slash Filmcast. Yes, yes, yes. Slash and the Tobolowski Files. Are Bless you about to say his... that working with David Chen is just like that? Because I agree. No. <laughs> he, he has never let me forget doing the TV show Work It, where the two guys dress up <laughs> oh, like I know, girls. I knew a That's... couple people on that show. You know, everybody was trying really hard on that show, but we're looking at the script, and you know, we're going like, "This is like, my God, <laughs> how how did this like get through?" All the the centuries, you know, that guard the studio. and everyone who watched the commercials said that too, and it was like you 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 really do wonder because you go like you know how hard it is to like get one thing even into somebody's hands, but I I was playing you now. Have you done a lot of the sitcoms? I've not done any half hour. I mean, it's so strange. I've I do comedy. I do sketch comedy. It's mm-hmm. kind of like how I know these guys and stuff. And I've never been, and I've even tested for half hours, but I've never, I've only ever done hour long shows. Let me let me explain the way. If, if <laughs> I've been to the tapings. Let's let's, let's pretend like on your radio dial, on your internet dial, it's like a football field. You have sets going across the stage. Yeah. Your A set, B set, C set, D set, and then where the audience can't see you off to the right or left, they have what they call swing sets. These are sets that they throw like a doctor's office in or a water cooler, something that they are only going to use in a small transitional scene. And when you perform on these sets, the audience can't really see you perform. Mm -hmm. They have to watch you on the monitors. So there's always a little lag in the laughter. So when you tell a joke, there's a little lag on work it. I was not on. One of those sets. <laughs> they had so many swing sets for that show I did. I was behind the stage. <laughs> I was behind the stage on the back side of the stage where all the people are getting dressed and everything in a swing set. 
I was so far away from the audience that if they laughed, I couldn't hear them. <laughs> I couldn't hear if they were laughing, you know, hold for laugh or whatever, walk through. So I had a girl sitting on the floor in front of me doing like her <laughs> oh hand. Oh, my God. Like they're laughing now. She's listening on like some walkie-talkie. Like I'm 100 yards away from the audience, and I'm saying this, and she's doing like this. And then pointing at me like, now you could talk. And and I'm saying this other innocuous line, and then she's like, pointing at me. It seems hard to stay in character in a moment like that. Oh, it was, and, and it, it, it was an experience to where when I finished that, I went like, my God, that, that's what it's like being a professional actor. Yeah. Not doing Hamlet. What it, I mean, I'd pay somebody to do a Hamlet in a reading, but it's like to be a professional actor, you do work it. Right. And you go home and you say, baby, we're done for today. Tomorrow is another day. But you know, this was, you're a person who, you know, if you look at like, you know, people always said about Gene Hackman and Michael Caine, they say like, they did so much crap, but they are never bad, right? Never bad. Right. Never. Right. And I saw it's John's like four, and uh, as as the character named Hoagie, Hoagie yeah, yeah, he's still pretty good. Yeah, he's not the one he he skipped the Oscars to do. Yeah, he skipped he was, when he to to give his speech for Hannah and her sisters, which which he won supporting actor. He was for. in Jamaica. He was in Jamaica. Well, you know that's Oscar, part of his right. whole thing in his acting book is you know I pick a film by what season it is and where they're filming it. <laughs> if it's a winter, I go to a warm climate. <laughs> if it's summer, I go to a cold climate. <laughs> so he was in Jamaica in March or February and didn't get his Oscar. But but yeah, you probably, you I bet you put every single bit that you put in everything else into doing that. Yes. You know? Everything and you, you apply every bit of brain power you can to it and you say, where is the meaning of this scene? Why... Uh, how can I make this funny yeah. in terms of believability? And and it comes down to what what you were talking about before is you have to absolutely believe the situation you were in, which in my case meant I was on some sort of pharmaceutical. Uh, yeah, I was taking some kind of drugs to to get through. You, you know, because I can't. I'm on a date with this guy who's dressed like a woman. And, <laughs> oh and, God, you had that part. I, Josh Fadum. Josh Fadum does it. Has a whole thing in his stand-up routine about. There's always the character in the movie or the TV show, the guy who's clearly a guy, but there's a guy who thinks it's a beautiful woman. Whether it's you know Joey Brown and Jack Lemmon and some like it hot or Terry you know, Crews like, and White Chicks. Whoa, my baby! <laughs> and, and it's like, and Joey Brown could do it in some like it hot because he's just this eccentric drunk. And then I know he actually doesn't really care and anyway. He doesn't care. <laughs> he just wants to dance tango the night away. It's absolutely sweet. Yeah. But in my case, you know, there are purient interests. And, and you know, I'm like looking at this guy that really looks like he could be on the Green Bay Packers. And I'm thinking like, okay, what am I really seeing? What, where, where does this guy look like a woman? And... And you have to believe, in my mind, he looks like a woman. You just have to. So that's where awards are messed up because they don't take into account, like, they go like, Stephen Tobolowski had to pretend that he was sexually attracted to this guy and think he's a woman. And look how good he is. I, I don't know. I mentioned, uh, half-jokingly, White Chicks, the uh, Wayans Brothers. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's not a good movie. I haven't seen it, But no. Terry Crews. Terry I saw Cruz. the one where one of them shrunk his head onto a baby's body <laughs> right. and pretended to be a baby. Um, but no, Terry Crews in that role, the Jerry uh -huh. Brown role, is amazing. 
He, well, Terry Crews is amazing. Yeah, yeah. that guy's hilarious. Uh, it's it's almost worth seeing just for how much he knocks it out of the park. You remind me of something of the people pretending to laugh for you. God, I haven't thought about this in a long time. So this is probably 20 years ago. I was in college, and a production of... Do you remember that play Love Letters? They used to do oh, yeah. it around. All so like, around. and they got it was a play where a man and a woman read love letters to each other. So they could read them on stage. So you could just throw whoever. So they would get these big stars to do it. And uh, I don't know if they did it on Broadway or what, but they toured it all over the country with different, you know, well-known actors. And oftentimes they would have real life couples. So they had like I remember Eli Wallach and Ann Jackson did it, and mm. you know, things like that. So uh, Robert Reed. From the Mike Brady from the Brady Bunch and Betsy Palmer, you remember her? Yeah. And then she sort of is well known to younger audiences as the killer in the first Friday the Thirteenth movie. Oh, okay, but she yeah. was this ingenue in uh, uh, was she in Marty or one of those films? Like she was, you know, this young. So they were there and they were speaking and he. Uh, we all wa- wanted to know about. We were excited about the Brady Bunch, and he just sat there and told us what a what a horrible, miserable experience it was, and he hated it. And they did that. He said that there was no studio audience, so people sat there and pretended to laugh, which made it worse. And he hated it. He hated it because he was a he was a serious actor, and he was coming up at the same time as. In fact, Gene Hackman turned that role down. That would have been, you know. A totally different story, you know. So he was coming up the same time as those guys, and he took that job, and that's what became his life. But he loved doing the when they did the Brady Bunch Variety Hour with mm-hmm. the singing and dancing and all that stuff. He loved that. Which well, you know, it's, you're actually there in front of an audience for the first time ever in your life. Well, I think it was a little bit more to it for for him. I think that was more of like what he was interested in doing you know right. i mean they thought the show was silly or whatever and he passed away shortly i think with like within six months or something of mm-hmm. meeting him or something but i just always you know i remember that but i had forgotten it from a long time ago that because you you suddenly snapped me back to it when you're talking about people pretending to laugh <laughs> for you so i remember him saying how awful that that experience was for him there's a i was listening to a recent episode of uh, never not funny and uh, harlan williams was on and he's you know he's been doing comedy in some way shape or form for you know 20 years yeah and uh, so he's got like a million stories because his his level of fame, you know, kind of goes up and down. But uh, he talked about he was there was like an eight. I think it was an agent or a manager or something like that, um, or maybe a booker. Uh, and he the guy was like, like incapable of laughter. Like he had he, <laughs> he'd work with comedians and like if he kind of the attitude like, well, if I laugh at everything, I'll be laughing all the time. So he just won't laugh. Instead, what he'll say, <laughs> you say a joke, and then he totally straight face will be like, I'm on the floor. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, no, I've heard of people say that, like, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember uh, the first moment I met Bill Murray on Groundhog Day. I was uh, running down, and uh, Harold Ramis says, come on, come on down and meet Bill. And I was like, oh, God. And my knees were knocking. And he's a big and kind of scary guy. Yeah. And and Harold Ramis was talking to Bill very pleasant, and, and Bill just stopped. Harold Ramis, from his pleasantries, turned to me and said, okay, show me what you're going to do. And I started, like, going, you know, Ned, you know, I started doing all the Ned Ryerson stuff. He says, okay, okay, you could stop. That's funny. That's okay. <laughs> you, you could do that. Okay. 
and and <laughs> all you, very seriously, you know, very seriously. And uh, man, I'm <laughs> what period of time? I mean, I'm sorry if somebody's asked you this uh, a zillion times, and I don't know the answer to it. What what period of time did you did it take to shoot that those scenes? About there? three. Uh, well. Because I know you're in the end of the film, too. But yeah, the- it's an interesting question just because, uh, and I've answered this before, so uh, it wasn't just the, the period of time, but Harold Ramis was not sure what the day of the movie was going to be because if you think about it, the day is a character. Uh-huh. The day has to be the same. Right. The weather has to be the same. Right. Right. You know, and so we... <laughs> We shot the scenes. We were shooting up on the Wisconsin-Illinois border where the weather is quite changeable. So yeah. we shot all those scenes. Woodstock, in the, Illinois. Woodstock, yeah. Illinois. We shot those st- scenes in sun, in rain, in snow, and in uh, gloom. And it ended up gloom was the day of Groundhog Day. And then the time started again when snow fell at the end of the movie. So... We not, it took three weeks to shoot those scenes in the street. Each one is shot slightly differently. Each one has a slightly different script, different camera technique. Sometimes we're on a dolly. Sometimes we're on sticks. Sometimes it's steady cam. Sometimes it's handheld. And we shot it in every weather condition. In three weeks of just shooting that scene or going and shooting other scenes in the because same way? Because we, we would have to... Everybody, Nobody was on uh, a hold right on that script we were on will notifies so when it would begin it, the day would begin gloomy they'd start shooting some exterior stuff then it would start to rain they'd say let's go back over to main street and shoot the ned ryerson scene in the rain and so we would they call me up in my room get down here we're, we're starting to shoot and then the rain would stop and say we're going to go back and shoot the other scene again so we were all like on a John Ford Western, right. where we were all on call, just whenever the weather would change, we went back and shot it again. So that's an amazing movie that everyone loves, but that makes me just like the craft that went into that, just hearing that is like makes it that much more amazing. That's what I was, was going to mention that, and this is something that I feel like there are some movies that so much goes into the making of them, but it's invisible. Like, like if you, because I, I remember, I think I, I heard, uh, you know, the, the retelling of, of, of Groundhog Day on, on your show. Yeah. And, uh, and I remember just, th- and just little things that I, I've seen Groundhog Day a number of times. And like, it never occurred to me. It's like, yeah, I guess it would have to be the same weather every time, doesn't it? Like, it just, because that won't change. Like, he might make a little change and, and somebody's behavior might modify. That's, that's understandable. But he can't change the weather. So that needs to be the same every time. And the amount of energy that goes into that, something that you're not supposed to think about. Right, no. Like, right. The amount of detail, the amount of uh, the attention to detail for something that is by its very nature not supposed to be noticed astounds me. And I feel like that's what happens a lot with comedy Um, and and some drama. Um, It's one of the things that I love about Moneyball is that so much went into the recreation of baseball, Mm -hmm. but it's supposed to be just the thing that's on in the background. It's just a common... It's just happening all the time for these characters, but they still had to make it happen uh, in the film. But but with comedy, uh, just... We focus on like the little laugh lines and be like, "Oh, that was funny," you know. But if anybody, but of course, Harold Ramis, he was never going to be nominated for best director for that movie. But when you think about, it, like, he's doing just as much as say, 
let's see, what was that, 93? Yeah. Okay. So, like Robert Altman with uh, Shortcuts right. or, or The Player. Uh, I don't remember which one was Shortcuts. Which. Um, yeah. So, like, and he does amazing things, but, but like, com- like, comedy directors, like, so much goes into it, and they never get the respect but, there's, there's another element, too, about comedy directors that people don't think about, and that is... To do successful comedy directing, you have to get it fast. Mm-hmm. And uh, because comedy doesn't survive 50 takes. Yeah, I mean, I work stale. with Stephen yeah. Frears. Yeah, it's gone. Uh, Stephen Frears, when he does a drama, I, I remember one day on one sh- I did two movies with him. The Grifters, right? Grifters yeah. and Hero. And movie. one, oh, one Hero, day yeah. on Hero, uh, we shot something like 130 takes. And then... Three, four days later, he came back and said, you know, I don't like any of them. We're going to – and we shot 80 more. You can't do that with a comedy. Get, uh, guess what wasn't funny? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Comedy lives in the two shot. That's yeah. – you, know, you know, because you – you need to not only see the person, you need to see the other person. The reacting. geography of it. The yeah. geography. So Harold Ramis has – when Bill Murray punched me, it was the first take that's in the movie. When Bill Murray hugged me, that scene, it was partly impro- improvised. First take, you know, Harold Ramis says, I don't know, I think we got it. Let's. No. You can't. You can't overdo that stuff. Well, and the editing. This is something that we've talked about on the show. Like, the editing... Uh, it's in, in I'd say lesser comedy films like the editing is really just more functional. Just okay, uh, reverse shot. There you go. Um, but lately, with uh, with more from, uh, frenetic filmmakers like an Edgar Wright, they actually find a way to make the editing like like hit punchlines through and editing telling choices. Jokes with the, yeah. I feel that's planning though. It's like you can tell when a, a director is like a Spielberg or a Hitchcock or whatever mm-hmm. and it's mapped out. It kind mm-hmm. of has to be. I mean, maybe sometimes you find happy. A lot of, so many people, I think especially in the digital age and two cameras, they just, they, they just figure they're going to find the movie in the editing room and you sit yeah. there and you do take after take and it's because they never had to shoot. I mean, I've made two short films and I've shot them both on 35 millimeter, you know, and I, I, cut on an avid and you know i cut negative and did all that stuff and it's like i cut a, i made a comedy and i had to cut and do my, know where my cuts were you mm-hmm. know now it's it, you know there's a there's a I, I wouldn't call it lazy but it's just if you can take all day then why why wouldn't you and then you just figure it out later and i don't think i don't think comedy survives that I, I, i've had so many problems with comedies recently like like this is 40 like uh, 21 Jump Street, which a lot of people like, for that exact reason. You can I thought just, you liked it, too. It, the second time I watched it, I laughed at it more. Yeah. But I can't, as a critic, I can't say that it's a good movie. I feel I like think. we should elaborate on this more next week. We will. Yeah, but... Um, uh, next week is comedies you don't find funny week. <laughs> we, we ended up talking about sort of comedies of 2012, um, and that'll come Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, that's the thing with 21 Jump Street and This is 40, is you can just feel where they're just, like, just winging it. And uh, and and it and then the worst part of that is like they go off down some sort of alleyway looking for funny, and then they have to, for the purpose of the scene, wrench it back to whatever they were talking about at the beginning. But they're also surrounded really by people who are saying that's funny. I mean, they must be because right. it makes it to the theater. So right. you know, I'm not going to speak to any movie in particular, but but you know, I don't, I don't understand that. Like, 
like you know i i have this love hate relationship with jerry lewis i worship him and i think he's hilarious and i i see what you know kind of a great humanitarian is and a great you know a filmmaker he is and then i see he's the monster and and the and the complete unfunniness and it was clear that you know when he was on top of the world number one movie star in the world and and with Martin and Lewis, they were the number one movie stars. They had the number one television show. They were the number one night in the club act. I mean, he was a giant star, the biggest star for, for you know, 15, 20 years. And you see these later movies where it's just slack, n- n- no laughs. And you know he was surrounded by people that were just laughing their ass off going. You just know. He actually has cuts to things. He cuts to people laughing at in the movie. Uh-huh. He'll cut to people like he'll cut to other characters with him doing some long slack thing, and it's just like that's another thing is like you got to stay fresh in the moment of making the actual film, but then over a, you know an entirety of the film, and then a, over the course of a career, you gotta not insulate yourself from that. Because the comedians a lot. We we um uh, are all all our friends with the Sklar brothers, and they often on their sports podcast talk about athletes who get too big and get an entourage and they have this thing they always come back to you have to have a no guy in your entourage right one guy whose well, job Flo- it is what was it Floyd, Floyd no. Mayweather was the guy who specifically had a guy who just said you're awesome all the time and that was his job <laughs> to just tell him how amazing and everything he did and said was yeah it is very common in comedy I was talking with uh, some friends of mine the other day about like you know like okay <clears throat> One of my favorite comedians of all time is Dennis Miller. Mm-hmm. He is not as funny as he used to be. And everyone is quick to say, well, it's because he came, became conservative. It's like, no, I think it's because he got old. And it's because, not to imply that like you, that will automatically happen, but after a while, you, you start to realize people will laugh when you start to say a joke just because, hey, Dennis Miller's starting to say a joke. And then you realize, and then it's just like, so the idea of workshopping material doesn't exist anymore because people are gonna they're gonna give you stuff even if you haven't earned it. As you see Seinfeld to, doing it though he does. Yeah, and he and he talks about. Uh, have you have you seen comedian? Yeah, yeah. Have you mm-hmm. seen? Uh, mm-hmm. He he talks about like going back on the road. And yeah, he, and he said yeah. being famous gets him what do you five say? minutes. Five minutes. Yeah, right. Five minutes, and after that, they're like, all right. Yeah. All right, funny man. <laughs> like, and that's when, and that's when it's like, yes, you do, you also do need to seek out audiences that are willing to turn on you. Right, you do need your your no guy. It's also nice to have, you know, know that you could live a thousand years and never run out of, and still have a billion dollars to have the time to do that. <laughs> so, um, um, now, well, how long have we been going? An hour and a half. Okay. So I wanted. Well, do you have something? I to wanted to uh, just go around the table real quick because. While we've been uh, talking about uh, the, uh, Pat and Steven's careers, which is movie-related, I want to know uh, just, like, one or two movies that everybody has seen lately and what everyone thought Yeah, this about is what we usually end up doing our 50, every 50 episodes because they come around, you know, the fall movie season. We end up talking about the big awards-type movies. So, yeah, what, did you guys, what have you guys seen that you liked? I will, I, I'm not going to talk about things I didn't like. I love The Silver Linings Playbook. And uh, Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah. Although I have some question about that, which isn't, you know, the issue that everyone's having is with the film politically, but I don't know. They may be telling the truth and maybe the politicians are lying, so I'm not going to hold the movie to that. Yeah. Uh, Django Unchained. Uh, oh, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. I haven't seen Civil Lines Playbook either. Uh, and um, those are the ones that, that seem to stick out in my mind right now. Uh I saw a very good film, an independent film, American film, called Starlet. 
Oh, oh I yeah, that's great. Good things Which about uh, uh, is 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 t- a terrific movie. It's a little movie, and uh, it, it ended up getting nominated for a couple of Spirit Awards and stuff. And um, this guy named uh, uh, Sean Baker made it. He made another film called Prince of Broadway, which is really good, which is on Netflix. And that was a real nice surprise. It's a small movie about a young woman and an older woman uh, becoming friends here in the Valley uh, mm. in L.A. Uh, and it's a really nice character study, but it's actually much more uh, densely and interestingly uh, plotted and written than than you might think. You know, it's just going to be a movie about two people talking, but it's it's really well written and done. I, I, I like that one a lot. Uh, big fan of Silver Linings. Yeah, Silver Linings Playbook. Big fan of it. Have you seen it, Tyler? Not yet. And neither has I seen it. It's it's uh, not only is it a terrific script, well acted, but you know. It's one of those movies where the production design is one of those phenomenal production designs that isn't an over-the-top, mm-hmm. but it's like poor people, you know, kind of lower no, middle class feels like in Philadelphia. You go like, oh, Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence are like middle-class people in Philadelphia, and then you go, oh, this completely, completely works. Completely yeah. works, and it's the, the, the set decoration, the art decoration, production design. I go like, man, what perfect... You know, they didn't make fun of it. They, it. It's like right on the nose, and it is a very compelling story. And last night I saw another one that is very compelling, which apparently I'm late to the party on, The Intouchables. Oh, oh I yeah. I haven't seen that either, it's, but I, I hear everyone loves that one, yeah. too. They yeah. love it so much that America's already doing an American version of it right. in English so you don't have to read the French subtitles. It's but the most successful film in, in France in the understandable. history of the country. Yeah. I mean, I'm watching it and it's one of those movies that I'm into it like seven minutes and my wife's doing Ancestry Plus over on, mm-hmm. and reading my email, thank yeah. God. <laughs> and, 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 she, and, I, and I stopped it and I said, baby, you may want to watch this because I think I think this is going to be a good one. And we watch it, and it's completely captivating. Uh, great acting, great story, just uh, incredibly moving, incredibly funny. Uh, it's well worth the subtitles. Yeah, one of the actors in it, I don't remember his name, but he uh, he was in a movie. Uh, French film earlier this year that I actually thought was not that great, but he was great in it. The movie's called uh, Little White Lies, which is not that not that good. But he's, I remember being like, "Who's that guy?" And mm-hmm. it, I understand like I'm not going to know French actors as, as well as I know American mm-hmm. actors, but like, oh, I feel like he's someone to keep an eye on. And then I saw him uh, like in the posters and stuff. I was like, "Oh, I've heard good things about this movie, <laughs> and he's good. Oh, this is very exciting." <laughs> um, uh, I, well, I'd, to, I'd take um, a cue from Pat and recommend um, some smaller stuff. I'm because Tyler and I will do our like best of the year sure. episode. Yeah. So I want to talk In about, about some, two months. Yeah, closer to the Oscars. But um, I want to talk about some like surprises um, that I that I've seen. Um, uh, it kind of flew under the radar, but Spike Lee made a documentary about Michael Jackson's Bad album. Oh yeah, and no, I want to see that. It's yeah. called Bad Twenty Five. Yeah, because it, it, it's the twenty fifth anniversary of the album. So great. I heard that's great. The, yeah, the, the the structure of the film is track by track. Like each section is about a song, on but but it manages he manages to tell a story about the you know the culture at the time and and what 
Michael Jackson's history before Bad was like, and then reference, you know, things. I, I, when he gets to Man in the Mirror, it's very much, it gets very, you know, he's sad. He's a magnificent documentarian, I'll That's, tell you, man. Yeah, he I mean, he's a great filmmaker, but as a documentarian, his documentaries are all good. And, and I feel I've like it doesn't come little up. little girls. Uh, not the, the the Katrina one, the Levy. Oh, I haven't no. seen that one. Yeah, when the Levy's right. broke is uh, yeah. one of the, my favorite documentaries probably of all time. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Bad 25 is great. Oh, keeping it in documentaries, um, The American Scream. I don't know if you guys have oh, seen that. that, which is a documentary about, it takes place in one neighborhood in, I want to say like Connecticut maybe, um, in this like small town. And there's these three different guys in this one neighborhood, three different families who all, like, get really into Halloween and build haunted houses for people that trick-or-treaters to come through. And apparently there's this, like, um, they're called home haunters, and this this whole, like, with the with the Internet, since the Internet, like, it's become a huge, like, industry and in a, in a subculture, and just through, like, these three these three families, it tells, it's just a story about guys who are obsessed with making haunted houses, and they're, like, they're not really weirdos. Some of them maybe are weirdos, but like it's mostly about them. Like, uh, like you guys talk about the sort of nobility of acting and how you feel when something connects. Like that's that's kind of what they're going for. They want to like give people this experience, and it's like it's the movie's very funny in that sort of American movie kind of way. Like mm-hmm. um, it, you know, because of their the quirky characters, but it's also just really moving and touching. I know that's on Netflix Instant because I saw uh, the the title on there, but I wasn't familiar with it. Um, And then one big movie that was a surprise to me that I just saw this week is Jack Reacher. Yeah, I thought that was great too. Yeah, yeah. It's I agree. Yeah, that was, that's, that, that's a really, really entertaining movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I I like, um, because Christopher McQuarrie, the only thing he directed before was The Way of the Gun, which I also like. Yes. And I think, People who like the way of the gun will find similarly sort of like postmodern, like um, uh, clever things. But people who don't like that about the way of the gun don't need to worry because Jack Creature is a straightforward. Action yeah, it's a straightforward noir action direction. noir '80s, '90s action movie. But it also owes a lot to the films of the '70s and that those anti-hero movies, Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, you know, mm-hmm. movies that, that I thought I, that I really liked about it. Yeah, I agree. and, and it ha- I won't spoil for the listeners because it was such a delight to me. But it has my f- favorite single line of dialogue. <laughs> I'll ask you year. if it's the same one that I have. <laughs> I, I, I <laughs> okay. And uh, Werner Herzog is the villain, and he's, <laughs> yeah. uh, he's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I've got a couple, and I don't remember if I, I don't remember if I mentioned one on next week's episode. But uh, so last night I saw Les Misérables, which I wanted to like more than I did. There are moments that are amazing. And moments where it's like, uh, eh. I agree. I liked it, but I, yeah. I, I, I thought Anne Hathaway was great. Yeah. Like when I was when I was younger, and I and I used to act in uh, musicals and plays and stuff. Uh, musicals always frustrated me because it was basically like, can you sing well? Great. Can you act? Who cares? As long as you can sing well, then you get the part. And I, and as somebody who that's sang, in, in, high, in high school, in high school, yeah, right. yeah. Uh, for somebody who can sing moderately well, but can act at the time could act very well. Um, I was just, uh, I was like, oh, this is bullshit. And just, uh, you, then you see Anne Hathaway and you're like, oh, that's how you do both. You do both. That's, yeah. that's amazing. <laughs> but there's and, certain people that don't, don't, don't do both. There, or, yes. There's one person in particular that does neither. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, you don't want to burn any bridges. So no, I'll say, I don't. I'll just say it's Russell Crowe. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's who you're referring to, but that's who I'm referring to now. And you know I what? Still I don't. It's I, cra- like, 2012 was the year that Russell Crowe was in a musical and a kung fu movie, and I think that's yeah. And you know what? And that means he's trying to challenge himself, and good for him. Uh, And it's one of those things where it's like he he tries 
and good and he's miscast. He shouldn't have been cast. If this were a straightforward adaptation of the novel, he'd make a wonderful Javert. Inspector Javert is one of my favorite characters of all time. Uh, I thought I loved it when Charles Lawton played him. I liked it when uh, Jeffrey Rush played him. Like he's an amazing character, uh, and Russell Crowe does what he can, but he should not have been cast in that part, and that's unfortunate. Um, uh, Hugh Jackman's great, uh, but as far as just the way it's it's directed, it's 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 Tom Hooper trying to go for gritty realism, which doesn't really work with a musical. I think. Well, I I see what he's attempting, and it's something about like what Alan Parker sort of tried to attempt with you know like you know grounding it in reality and, and <laughs> things like that. Uh, with uh, and and who else did the uh, you know you know he did that with Fame and Bugsy Malone and and a few other things, but. It, you know, one thing that that uh, musical I realize that Les Mis doesn't have you know dancing a lot of dancing like traditional musicals, but boy, there was a lot of close-ups in that movie. Yeah, and I li- I did like the movie. I, I you know I, I, I liked it, but I, I it's an incredible amount of close-ups for a, mu- a three-hour musical. Yeah, and you're just kind of like, it's great because you're seeing the actors' faces and they're they, you know the singing is all live and and everything, but it's it's it becomes a little. Now, I never saw the King's Speech, but. When he did the John Adams miniseries, that was that, that's something I remember. Is there being but a lot of close-ups? It's television. In that. I mean, yeah. it's different, you know. Yeah. 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 And Although the thing, they're sort of becoming the same thing. But. And the thing is, like, you know, when you're seeing a musical like on stage, you're kind of removed from it, so everything yeah. needs to be bigger. And because you're a little further away from it, the the operatic tone doesn't seem quite so suffocating and overwhelming. Yeah. When you're right there, it's just like. Wow, this is this seems overblown. I know it's not. I mean, I never felt like... that way about it. I, I thought it was actually like a really noble attempt to try and do something differently yeah. that is moderately successful, you know. And, and you know. but like you like compare the rest of the movie to the Master of the House sequence where there actually is a little bit of choreography right. and long and wide no, shots great. and like that sequence, and you're like. Oh, the movie could have been this, but yeah. it isn't. That's unfortunate. And the but sets still, are great and everything too, and, but yeah. you don't really see them all yeah. that much. It's, yeah. it's, it's worth seeing. I'd yeah, say I agree. Favorite, favorite I agree. movie musicals? Anybody? Do you have uh, of all time? Yeah. I mean, I guess The Wizard of Oz. Although some people would say that that isn't tech. I mean, I mean, it is. It has songs, it has yeah. dancing, and everything. I love that. I love singing in the rain. That would be my. I for years have said cabaret, and then last, I guess, oh, just over a year ago, because I think every Thanksgiving weekend, the Arrow in Santa Monica shows Singing in the Rain, like yeah. 35 millimeter. And my mom was in town, and I went and saw it with her. And I'd, I mean, I'd watched the movie a million times growing up, but just watching it, it was the first time I'd seen it in a theater. With an audience, yeah, it's and, a different yeah, thing. Yeah, so it's, it's Singing in the Rain for all time now, probably. I have to go, and this answer would change at different times. Tonight, it's swing time. Fred mm-hmm. Astaire, That's I great. mean, you cannot beat that music. The dance numbers are exquisite. And and I'm watching that movie, and I realize, oh, I get it. Swing Time with Fred Astaire is a science fiction film. <laughs> it's because his dancing is creates in me what CGI thinks it wants right. to create, and I go like, how on earth does someone do that? How do they do it? And of course, they... They shoot it feet to head, you yeah. know. There's no faking mm-hmm. it, and it's what it is. There's and a it's- there was a wonderful scene in The Sound of Music, which is silent, basically, where where Julie Andrews and and Christopher Plummer are starting to fall in love, and they do that little quiet dance out in the courtyard, and it's Robert Wise just frames it. It's a wide frame, and the emotion of that is so beautiful you can say the same thing about great action movies and why action movies aren't as effective now and you said it before about comedies yeah. setting up the geography showing that the people 
Which yeah. Les Mis does, like, with the acting and the singing. It's yeah. like showing that people are actually doing what you're seeing them do. Now we just take it for granted and it's just yeah. like nobody cares. But you do care when you see that, when you see well, what that man could do. Speaking of action, part of the reason I liked Haywire so Haywire, much almost yeah. a year ago yeah. at this point is that he just, like, set the camera. I mean, there's a couple Well, of he had somebody like, that could do, do that, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe not so much the the other part of the job, but she's okay. But you know, yeah, I thought she was passable. Yeah. Uh, so the other movie that I that you I haven't said a favorite movie musical. Have you? Oh, uh, it's probably either Cabaret or, or West Side oh. Story. Yeah, West Side Story. So I like that yeah. one a lot. Um, but uh, even though I, there's there are some songs in that, I have a whole. Th- I won't talk about it now, but I have a thing about musicals where it's just like you're suddenly you're forced to listen to music you would never listen to otherwise. But like because characters oh, speak for are, yourself. I, I know care and hey I, I listen, love guys I and dolls to, too by the yeah. way yeah it's and there are some I, songs I have, that are beautiful but at the same time it's oh, I did not want to get into this because everybody <laughs> hates me for this opinion it's one of the like you're listening to characters sing and they're singing in a character voice and nine times out of ten the characters in musicals are heightened uh-huh. and so you wind up listening to something that is it's it's melodic and so it fits but it's also at times a little screechy and it's like this isn't pleasing to my ear this is not like but i i'm listening to it and i feel like i shouldn't be my ears don't want to listen to this but i'm watching it it's very it's i i feel very torn i uh uh, you know i have a pretty big like music collection but i only have on my ipod like stuff that i listen to a lot and, and really like um, and my girlfriend will be in the car with me while I'm driving around with my iPod on, on shuffle, and it'll be so it'll be like my bloody Valentine. It'll be it'll be Billy Holiday. It'll be uh, Chuck Berry, and then it'll be the Guys in Dallas soundtrack. Right, yeah. <laughs> and it's also like she's not into it the way I am, yeah. but I like I'm singing along. Yeah, and, yeah. So the other movie that I really like, and this one is a very divisive film, uh, is Killing Them Softly, which I really love. It's, I, I it's saw flawed. it. I didn't think that it was... Uh, 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 I liked it. I, I, it is very flawed. Yeah. But for some reason, and it's one of those things, and David, ha- you have this with, with Avatar, everybody's objections with it, you're like, absolutely. I still love it. I'm sorry. I don't and that's, know what to This tell year, you. that's how I feel, feel about Cloud Atlas. And that's how I, I'm with you on Cloud Atlas and Prometheus, both of oh. us. Uh, I, people, like people, I have a question about okay. Cloud Atlas. Okay. And, and maybe, maybe it requires theater knowledge. Is, is that um, there was a big hit in the late 70s uh, called Cloud Nine. Yeah, I was in that play in college that Carol Churchill played. So Carol Churchill, yeah. and again, it's about traveling back. It and does forth have in some similarities. I never with, thought about with it before. gender bending, yeah. where where the guy huh. plays the girl, the girl yeah. plays the guy, and the big showpiece of the play is the curtain call right. at the end, where the actors run across the stage one yeah. at a time, and then they run around and change clothes. But but the line of actors keeps going right. to all thirty parts that are in the play, huh. and I'm right. thinking like. Was Cloud Atlas influenced at all by Cloud Nine? I don't know. You a guy that's really interesting. I, I, I never thought I never wow, thought about okay. it till now. We'll just put. But that I, I felt yeah, that I same wanna... way. Like people say Prometheus. They have these logic questions. And I just go. I don't know. I just saw that movie twice, and I just was completely mesmerized by every moment of it. And I, well, I hear what you're saying, but I'm like the, I, the aforementioned um, Village Voice poll put Cloud Atlas as the worst movie. Of yeah, the year. because and, and it got enough votes. Have, yeah, and it's, I I get it. I get why people yeah. can I, be turned off. I'm by not going to yeah tell people to go see it, but I loved it as well. I so. enjoyed it quite a bit. I, I like it less than when I first saw it, but I like it quite a bit. But um, Killing Them Softly has it's. I think it's really well written. At times, it's a little clunkily written. Uh, I think it's really well acted. I think it's. It's one of those things where every Gandolfini year... Gandolfini is fantastic. Every year there's a performance where I'm like, 
the very nature of this performance, the nature of the film, it's not going to get any kind of Oscar recognition, and it should. James Gandolfini. But you know what? Everyone should be doing in that film. It's based on a George V. Higgins book, and George George Higgins wrote these crime novels that were sort of that were about sad, that sad melancholy. They were sort of like the John Le Carre was to spies. He was to like this lower class crime, you know, in Boston, and it was you know. Friends of Eddie Coyle was Friends of Eddie Coyle, yeah, with with Robert Mitchum and and um, Peter Boyle, and and he. Gandolfini embodies that 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 kick that sadness of that that older over the hill gangster so well. He's so incredibly well, sad in the film. Has such, I mean, he's a big guy. Yeah, he's tall and he's just big. He's so imposing, but you just see him just sit the way he sits in the chair. Yeah, and you just see him just deflate. Yeah, in no, front it's, of you. it's but you also are very aware that he is very dangerous. Maybe yeah. even more like a wounded dog. Yeah, like oh, he's gonna he could bite you at any point and uh he and was, that's the thing is there's violence around every corner in sure. this movie there's a lot i like uh, in that movie yeah, we, we were talking earlier about like taylor kitch and channing tatum but i, I haven't seen killing them softly but james gunnafini also has um a, a pretty big part in not fade away and a small part in zero dark 30 mm-hmm. and he like uh i guess he just couldn't couldn't be more different in the two roles and, mm-hmm. and is is great he's the best part of not fade away which is a um was a bit of a disappointment for me as a huge Sopranos fan I wanted to like David Chase's first movie but um, I think we should wrap up an hour and 45 minutes Um, Steven is asleep again (laughs) (laughs) oh no now that's a sugar coming from the (laughs) snicker yeah let's yeah let's sign off and, and eat some more I've if there's any of the uh cranberry hootie creeks left in there um, eat them eat them before I get to them because those are my favorite there's one right on top (laughs) Um, (laughs) so um Guys, thanks for being on celebrating our Thank you. episode with us. Um, I just want to say it's a great honor and, and privilege and pleasure to sit here and, and speak with you, Stephen. Too. I mean, you, I sir. love Thank speaking you, with Pat. you guys every time, but this this and has it's been great. great. And it's great to see. You. It's always fun to see you guys <laughs> and 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 to do this. This is this is great. I appreciate the invite. And I will say, uh, since we're all uh, getting a little modeling, um, I will say that uh, you know, three hundred episodes, like. You know, as while I will likely make jokes about uh, to my friends about how, especially when I go back home for Christmas to people who don't understand podcasting, uh, I I'll make jokes about like 300 episodes. That's pretty sad. Um, <laughs> it's actually pretty great getting to meet listeners like this past year, like listeners in New Zealand and stuff like that. And it's looking like when I go to Switzerland, I'll meet a listener there. Like it's it's pretty amazing. Um, but then also like people like Pat and Stephen, like. You know, I remember seeing Pat and Magnolia and Ghost World and just barely tolerating your character in Ghost World, <laughs> you know. But then I remember uh, Warner Brandis in uh, Sneakers and stuff oh, like that. Oh, yeah. And just, uh, and the fact that, you know, you guys talked about feeling sad when you don't get to work with a certain director or something like that. And there are some actors that, like, the fact that you guys have been on the show, it's like, Huh, maybe we could get a, you know a lot of other, maybe we could you know and then like when Maury Chaykin passed away I was like oh uh-huh. he would have been good I know he li- I know he lived in Canada but like I feel like he, he, he would have been here enough this satellite link up yeah and so like so it's stuff like that but the fact that like we've had like you know you guys on and some you know heroes from my childhood like Maurice LaMarche and stuff like that and Townsend Coleman like it's it really is astounding and so you know thanks 
to the listeners for listening uh, for 300 episodes, because I assume they've all heard every episode, right? Um, and then thanks to all of our guests, and at the moment, you guys specifically, because it really is uh, astounding that this is happening. Yeah, I, I won't lay on in much more sad, but that, I will back up what you said, thinking the listeners who like it, it's the reason it's not sad because it, we could just be doing throwing 300 episodes in, out into the ether every week but we uh, we have people who listen and, and, and interact with us and engage with us um uh, with each episode and that uh, makes it uh makes it fun so thanks again to you guys for being here um and yeah thanks everybody for uh tuning in for 300 weeks um uh and hopefully you know here's the 300 more um Again, I'll go left to right. Pat, where can people find you and your work on the internet? Uh, well, uh, Twitter, Pat underscore Healy, H-E-A-L-Y. I have a Tumblr, which is mostly about movies, which is, uh, t- I think it's the Pat Healy at Tumblr, or Tumblr.com slash Pat Healy, something like that. You could probably find me if you just sit Tumblr, Pat Healy. And Stephen? Uh, right now, a good place to get me is at StephenToboloski.com. There you go. And... Uh, you could be looking for the Dangerous Animals Club. That's a book that's out there at the bookstores and at Amazon and at stephentoboloski.com. Uh, funny book. And uh, also, I think I think maybe by the time that we hear this, David, Chen, and I will be back on the Toboloski Files uh, podcast. Uh-huh. Uh, also, we... we um, You'll you'll hear some of the uh, Tobolowski files on Public Radio International (PRI). Yeah, uh, we're going to be in twenty five cities, twenty five markets, and four of the top ten markets. So I'm really happy with that, and that's going to start like next week. Awesome! So Great. so be listening in. Uh, we'll be coming to a city near you. Great. So. Um Thanks again for being here. Uh, you can find us at battleshippretension.com. Email us, david at battleshippretension.com or tyler at battleshippretension.com. I, David, am on Twitter at The Pretension. Tyler's on Twitter at More Lessons. That's the official Twitter of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson. It's at morethanonelesson.com. My other podcast, as mentioned earlier, is the television review show Previously On. That's at previouslyonshow.com. So thanks to everybody, and we'll get you next time. Bye. 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 Bye.